my gosh. I am so excited to get to talk to you one-on-one. -on -one. You say so many things that I love all the time. I feel okay. like like the first thing I heard from you was uh, you mentioned curiosity and empathy, which two they're two of my favorite things in the world. I honestly believe curiosity is the solution for most of the world's problems. Oh, yeah. I, we do, too. Totally. <laughs> Kristen Donnelly is a TEDx speaker, international empathy educator, and researcher with two decades of experience in helping people understand the beauty and difference and the power and in inclusivity. She is one of the good doctors of Abbey Research, COO of their parent company, and an unapologetic nerd for stories of change. Kristen is living outside of Philadelphia with her husband where they're surrounded by piles of books and several video game consoles. As of the release of this episode, I'm super excited to announce that Kristen's first two TEDx talks are available now on TED.com. You can find the info for her TEDx talks and all things Kristen in the show notes at CuriousIdealist.com. And I'm truly honored that she's decided to generously give a little time to this curious idealist. So let's hop into the rabbit hole and figure out how to bring the ideal to life. So, I know it's been a long time coming. So it the way I'll say this, the ways of Ted are mysterious. And there are people that give a Ted talk on a Saturday and it's on YouTube the following Thursday. And there are other people. It is six months of a wait. I am in the second category. So I had the privilege of taking the stage at South Lake Tahoe TEDx event in May of this year to talk about my idea, which is that we have to stop tolerating each other and start welcoming each other instead. And I got 18 minutes to unpack that idea of how by using tolerance as the framework through which we interact with each other, we've flattened each other into like the one thing we know about someone. So it's, they are the, the person in the wheelchair at our office or the one who likes the Green Bay Packers or the one who has a bunch of kids. Like we don't actually know people anymore because we're encouraged even not to, because what happens if we find out something about them we don't like, and then we have to cut off all relationship. And my point is that instead we understand that there's always going to be something about people we don't like. There's always going to be something that we disagree with. And the process of choosing to not do life with people is much more complicated than I don't like the football team that they support. And we can hold a lot of things about people that are true at once. And so how can we have an attitude and a posture of inclusivity and welcome? Because here's the truth. And anyone who works in an organization knows this. I'm sure you see this at your day job, Angel. We have been doing diversity initiatives for 40 years and they don't work. And the reason they don't work is because we are treating diversity as the goal. Oh, we have to like build diversity. No, pals, every group you're already in is diverse because all humans are diverse. So we all carry diversity within us. So when we walk into a room, we only make things more diverse. Now, as organizations, we have done nothing to harness that diversity or allow it to flourish or anything else because we still have this idea that you should keep like only bring certain pieces of yourself to work or to the, or to wherever. And my thing is what if we created environments where everybody could br bring their whole selves? What if I am not just the woman at the table, but I'm also allowed to bring my perspective as an expat or as um, somebody who's married to somebody who had a green card once? What if I'm allowed to be my full self and I get to choose what I bring to the table and my organization doesn't tell me what I get to bring to the table. What would look, what would be different then? And my answer is that the world would change because when we allow people to be their full authentic selves, we get stuff done. 
instead of talking about getting stuff done, we get actual stuff done. So that's the TED talk. I get to te- I get to talk about my favorite theory, which is intersectionality. And I get to talk about hospitality and being radically welcoming. And I, I get to talk about my love of the Liverpool Football Club. There's a lot to love <laughs> in the talk. And it was the best experience of my life to date. Radically welcoming. That might be one of the most insightful phrases I've heard in quite a while. I love that. Oh, thank you. I talk about like radical authenticity or radical transparency. You know, I've had a lot of conversations around that because I, I'm someone who has trouble being anybody but myself. And so the idea that authenticity is becoming such a not even just accepted, but desired trait mm-hmm. in the people that we work with, the people that are leading us. I'm, I'm an enthusiastic supporter of that trend. But that idea of uh, radical welcoming, I think, is really cool. It works for me, I think, because what I, I was raised in a culture where hospitality was prime and not like we threw dinner parties. I don't think my parents ever threw dinner parties. But, and if they did, it gave my mom, I'm sure such incredible anxiety that she would never want to do it again. But we always had an open house policy. Like my mom was the friend, was the mom that had my friend's snacks stocked in the pantry because it was just this posture of everyone is always at home whenever we're around. What can we do to make you home, to give you home? How can we create home? After you've been here once, you help yourself. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And not in the, but like also... How do we make sure that you are safe with us too? Creating a safe space for people. Yeah. And safe emotionally and safe. And so that's a huge part of empathy for me, as we talked about a little bit earlier, is that empathy is a mental framework and it's choosing understanding other people instead of assuming things. And in a lot of ways, I've been doing this my whole life and had no idea until I stopped and sat back and was like, that's why other people frustrate me so much. (laughs) Got it. Okay. (laughs) This makes total logical sense to me, but I see why it doesn't to other people. So I'll start talking about it. So yeah. So welcome is like a, to me is a posture of, there's a, a, a progressive Christian theology theory called radical hospitality. And so I did not coin that phrase. I didn't come up with it, but I think beyond that, the welcome, the posture of sure, everybody's home. And I need to be very clear though here, because this is where I get a lot of pushback. I am not saying you have to be friends with people who are damaging to you. Hmm. You still get to draw boundaries here. You still get to say, I cannot do life with that person. Um, the, The example I always give is that Adolf Hitler deserves empathy because we have to understand He doesn't even deserve it. We have to have empathy for him because we have to understand why he did the things we did. How did it get to the point where he was that person? Why does he think this way? I mean, and in his particular case, how do we prevent it again? (laughs) How do we make sure this doesn't happen? What are the seeds? All those kinds of things we have. If we just ignore it and talk crap about it and not understand it, how can we prevent it from happening again? I almost feel like that we're creating the environment for it to happen again. Exactly. So if we, if we tolerate everybody, then all we do is, is make jokes about it or dismiss it. If you seek to understand other people, I can still make decisions that I am not going to be friends with Adolf Hitler if he was reincarnated. I still get to say, I do not agree with that. I understand where you're coming from. I understand that thought process. I can follow those lines. I violently disagree with them. I think you're wrong. I think you're destructive. And I want no part of that in my life. But that's an informed choice. Right. That's not just like, hey, he kind of skews me out and I'm not going to hang out with him. That's like, hey, here are the seven things of his ideology I disagree with. (laughs) 
I'm not going to vote for X, Y, Z because I don't like them is tolerance. I'm not going to vote for X, Y, Z because I fundamentally disagree with their economic policy is empathy. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I think that there's so, I don't want to go take it down a whole political path, but when you think about politics, that's, I think a big problem with the way that politics work in general is that people make snap decisions without understanding enough about everything behind the scenes, all of the policies, all of that, like there's a new bill that comes out that's 500 pages long and there's a headline that's one sentence long and somebody forms an opinion about it. Now me, I'm a rabbit holer. That's yeah. That's why I have the bunny. I'm going to go, I'm going to see if I can see a copy of it. And then I'm going to sit there and I'm going to scroll through pages and try to understand like what is actually going on here. Because I know that one person's interpretation of three sentences out of the documents is not the full reality of the situation. And I think yeah. when it comes to anything around that politics, we do that all the time. We make these snap decisions based off of media headlines without understanding what's going on and if you have that decision after you take the time to understand i think that's one thing but not not understanding and then not only not understanding but going and passionately speaking to something that you don't understand is something that really gets under my skin yeah that's not my favorite i think if i was going to narrow my one of my life mission statements down is that we should always be making informed choices and your that's hard your opinion can change Your understanding can change. My understanding has grown. I am almost 38 years old. And I will tell you that eight-year-old Kristen thought some very different things about the world that 38-year-old Kristen does. And so did 28-year-old Kristen. Mm -hmm. Um, 28-year-old Kristen hadn't even met my husband yet. Um, Like life changes. And so all of life is a process of unlearning and relearning. Mm -hmm. But I deeply believe that we can make informed choices. And there are people in my life who I love, by the way, and I'm happy to do life with them. But we've drawn the boundary that like this category of things we disagree so much on that we can't have a productive conversation. So we can love each other outside of that box. Mm -hmm. Then there's other people where that box is so big that I can't do life with you at all. But, But there's, there's much more nuance and grace and wiggle room in understanding than there is for me in snap judgments. Mm -hmm. Because you're taking the time to understand those people and their point of view to understand how big is this point of view within their life from their perspective to make that informed decision of whether you can do life with them or not. I love that. Yeah. And I, I think I've seen it in evidence in my personal life. And so, you know, I always say it's anecdotal and academic evidence because there's lots of evidence about how the more different our friend circle is, the more holistic we are, the more emotionally, the more resources we have, the more potentially emotionally balanced we are. Even if we have severe mental health crises, the more support we have from different quadrants, the essentially the more legs on the table, the more stable the table. And it's the same way for organizations, the more legs at the table, the more stable the table. Um, I love that. And so we just have to keep, but that's so much work. And I think like, that's one of the reasons that I get really angry about diversity exercises or somebody saying like, we're, we need to build diversity. It like actually sets my teeth on edge. And, um, I feel like I've, my, my job is kind of is growing and done. Cause the number of text messages I get from people now, when like president Biden says the word diversity or tolerate in a speech and the number of text messages I get that are like, he needs to listen to your Ted talk. I'm like, <laughs> I agree. Um, so I'm like, my brand is strong, but like the word tolerate sets my teeth on edge. Even the word diversity sets my teeth on edge. I, it's very difficult for me. Um, to kind of unsee what I've seen. And I get very frustrated when we pretend that we can 
you know, have a workshop um, and do four or five hours and we treat diversity as entirely racial and entirely between black and white people. And then we say, cool, we're diverse now. Good. Everybody good. Cool. We're good. Fantastic. We'll see you next year. Box check. Box check. It's just a tick box. And that's how you get things like the Emmys the other night, as you and I talk, where you have the most absolutely diverse racially, economically, lifestyles, even like within gender identities, most wide range of performers they've ever had. And every acting nominee went to white, every acting trophy went to white folks, every single one. Really? Mm-hmm. And we were all, all pretty much- I didn't watch. All of the major drama categories went to the crown, all four awards. So, I mean, I watched because I'm a culture commentator. That's what I do. But like, I just kept getting more and more progressively angry um, that this is what, this is what happens when you don't do the work. Like representation is only part of the, of the process, but like the Emmys wiped their hands and said, amazing, now we're diverse. And they didn't do the work to actually explain or value or understand, or so everybody's just going to vote for the most popular thing. So they voted for the crown. I mean, it's hard to like look at Jillian Anderson's name and not say, oh, I'm sure she deserves an award. So if you don't, so if we treat diversity as just a tick box exercise or a press statement, it doesn't actually do what we want it to do. Mm-hmm. What we need to understand is that is kind of do an intersectional thing. So here's all of the various pieces of diversity that I carry with me all the time. You know, I'm, I'm a woman. I've been a woman since I have felt I am a woman since birth. So I'm a cisgendered heterosexual woman. I'm in a heterosexual marriage with a heterosexual white man, but that white man was born outside the United States. Um, and you know, we have all of that. I carry with me all the time that I'm, a was raised in a family business. So I have no concept of like corporate America, (laughs) none. (laughs) I wasn't raised in it and I don't work in it now. I spent 30 years of my life in academia and then I left intentionally. So I carry all of this within me to everything I go, I go to. And if I was hired by somebody and they're like, all we really want you for is because you're the good white lady. I'm like, "Mm, I'm a lot more and I'd love to bring those things. And I'd love to, I'd love to do that. So all that being said, a lot of people will look at my husband and I and say, oh, you guys aren't exactly like a diverse marriage. Cause we both look, we look like we match. We both present as middle-class. We both look intelligent because we have glasses and that's what people think. (laughs) Um, and all that kind of stuff. But then he opens his mouth and I open my mouth. We very clearly are from two different places. Mm -hmm. And then we start, we, if you keep us talking, we have some things in common, but man, do we see the world differently in some ways. And so if we are that messy and there's that much that we just bring to the table and we look like we match in terms of what people think of in diversity, what must your organization be like? Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on like in different organizations, they have networks um, that are labeled under different like as part of diversity initiatives, a lot of corporate structures will include some sort of like employee networks where mm-hmm. they're focused in on education and um, allyship and things like that around different um, minority groups. What are your thoughts on those kind of groups? So again, I've never been in corporate America, so I've never been in one. So I say that. But what I hear from other people a lot is that they can be really cool if used right, because people often do need a safe space 
to make sure they're not alone in an experience, to have allies and advocacy. The problem becomes when they become an echo chamber. And the deal is not, okay, we're going to do this here. And then we're also going to make sure that we're planning events where we're meeting with other groups or we're doing company-wide initiatives or we're doing other things. There is a way to have safe, productive, you know, I always joke like family meetings, but then there are public meetings that the family has to show up for. So I think what, from what I hear is that most organizations where people really complain about these are the ones where it becomes the echo chamber. And the ones where people report that it works is when they are then active. There's a representative for that group on the on the governing management board. There's a, um, you know, it's almost like there's a union rep in a certain way. Like they are their own, you know, there's somebody at the table specifically or um, the, the option of planning company parties rotates those groups. That there aren't just special interest groups based on things like race and gender, but there are also groups that you can join if you are a primary caregiver for a parent. Or like there's other intersections here. You can join if you're somebody like you can almost make it your own like Facebook group section where it's like, well, we're all anyone who like has is going through grad school right now. Like, let's all get together for drinks. Like if you do all of the intersections instead of just the popular ones, then that widens the idea that everybody is welcome to bring whatever they want of themselves to the table. I love that idea. Um, we've got a we've got a couple in the company that I work with that go outside of of just that race category. But one of the things that I think seems to work well is making first of all making it open to anyone in the company mm-hmm. to join, not only people that identify with, which can be hard to communicate because when somebody sees, oh, that's the name of this group, but I don't identify as that, it may feel like I'm not like I shouldn't join that. But me, I'm curious curious idealist. And so when I saw that there was the option to join them, I clicked all of them and I joined all of them because I want to learn as much as I can about people who come from different backgrounds than I do, or people who have lived different lives. And I feel like you can learn something new from every person you meet. Sometimes you learn very that whatever that thing is very quickly and no longer want to interact with that person maybe, but, but you, I feel like you can learn something from everyone you meet. Oh, that's yeah. So just the experience of joining all of the different networks, whether I identified with them or not, has been a really good experience for me. It's created more, I think, allyship and advocacy, being able to understand where people are coming from and things that people are going through, attending different sessions where people are speaking up about their experiences related to whatever the thing is. I like the idea of expanding that, though, I think, because I think there's a lot of things that aren't covered and a lot of people who have been through big things that are a big part of who they are that they don't know where that safe space is to talk to other people that are have been through those things. Um, and I think it's important too to have some fun ones in there. Like, you know, like have a, have a, have a group where people can find other, like, you know, golf enthusiasts or people who really like board games, like also make sure that to communicate as a company that your intersections aren't just the tragic big things. It also makes you a different person. If you love Harry Potter and you grew up on that. And like the first thing in your old, like aim profile was your Hogwarts house. That's an important (laughs) part of how we all see the world versus I've never, I don't read at all. I don't, I don't like reading. Um, It's a massive important part of who I am that I spend a lot of my time thinking about superheroes. (laughs) So like that's, have the fun ones too. 
and maybe they don't meet as often, you know, and don't just do them around Halloween. Christ, a lot of us who really, really love things don't love dressing up and that's okay. So do the fun things and the serious things, because the more people have fun together, the more, the more likely they are to trust each other with the hard stuff. You said something, I, I was listening through something that you had been on and it made me really want to ask you the question. I, I'm, I'm, I am a student of leadership and forever will be one. Um, just digging into what makes good leaders, where the leader pitfalls are, that stuff is all really interesting to me. What, what makes people follow someone? What makes people not follow someone? And so I wanted to ask you the question, what do trampolines have to do with leadership? I am so glad you asked. Uh, the trampoline is how I teach emotional intelligence. So when you think about the four parts of the trampoline, they all, they all do this. And this all comes back to the fact that you cannot be a good leader unless you know who you are, because people are going to hit buttons that you didn't anticipate. You are going to react emotionally when you should be reacting logically. The process of being a good leader is the process of constant self-awareness and reflexivity and knowing who you are to know, to react well and lead well. So that's the thing. Um, so one of the ways that I encourage people to think about their lives is to think about a trampoline. So the first one is the first bit of the trampoline is, is the base that you have, obviously. And the base, the way that we explain it at Abbey Research is that those are the non-negotiable things in your life. They're your ethics. They're how you see, fundamentally see the world. And the only way that that really changes by the time you hit your mid twenties, you know, we all change our stuff until we hit around our mid twenties. And then usually we're pretty formed at that point. There's people that argue that we're formed at age seven. I don't believe that. Um, I think there's elements of us that young, but I think truly how we move through the world is formed by our mid twenties. And then at that point, whatever, the only way to change the base at that point is usually through trauma or tragedy. That's usually why you rewrite fundamentally who you are after your mid twenties is is that process. So like for me, a really big part of my base is my identity with my faith system and how I've defined that faith system is super different throughout the, throughout my life. But where I fundamentally landed now is that I am here to be of service, that love is a verb and that I have, I only see through a glass darkly right now. I am not supposed to understand everything because it's impossible to. What I have been called to do is show up every day and love the person in front of me the best way I know how. And that's it. That's the mission. And everything past that can be flexible. So that's my base. Then you have the springs around the base that then hold up the bouncy bit. And the springs are the stuff that's still really important, but can change in and out. Like you could have a spring for your whole life. You could also have a spring for 10 minutes and get rid of it. So these springs are more like, you know, a little bit less of like fundamentally who you are, but maybe like the exact. So in my faith system, it's like, this is the exact theology I'm playing around with right now. This is the language I'm using to express this, but it isn't like the core of who I am, or it's the things that can be important, but like, I'm not going to die on them. So like, there's some things about how I see the world where I'm like, this is really important to me, but if I'm wrong, like, that's fine. I'm not, I'm not getting into a debate about this. I don't really care. Um, and so those are the springs. They're the things that can, can rust and need some maintenance. They're the things that can change in or out. Um, but that aren't, if it does change, it's usually not a trauma. If it's usually just a, oh, it's not really working. 
anymore. That's not really what we're doing. So in emotional intelligence, those are often the things where it's like somebody really offends us with them and we don't like really rise to the fight. We just go, okay, that's fine. Um, And if we are rising to the fight, there's some other stuff happening that we need to figure out. So then the third part is the bouncy bit, which I think is the scientific term. Um, And the bouncy (laughs) bit is where we invite other, other people to test those springs. So here are the ideas. So for instance, one of the things I'm playing around with right now, one of my springs that I'm playing around with right now is why am I so convinced? Because I know I am, but I can't articulate why. Why am I so convinced that we have to understand trauma differently to understand empathy? I'm not sure how to articulate that. I just like know it within my gut that we have to start talking about trauma differently. So I have invited several bouncing partners to help me test that spring. So these are dead and alive people. These are fictional characters. These are whatever. These are people that I'm ideologically bouncing around with to test out the springs right now. So there's um, one of the ideas I'm playing with is the very nature of human community. And there's the guy who's known the most for writing about the, the kind that I'm looking at is a guy named Benedict Anderson. So like he's in there right now. Brene Brown is always in there. Um, <laughs> like some folks that I've met on Clubhouse are in there. It's, I'm specifically thinking about this particular piece. Theories on trauma are in there as I'm bouncing around and figuring things out. So that's that's who helps you kind of test all the stuff. Okay, well, I kind of think this idea, but let me play with it a little bit. Um, or I, I kind of think this about myself. Like if, as everyone should go to therapy at least once in their life, your therapeutic professional should be in there. You know, maybe your, your lead yoga practitioner is in there. It's the ideas about the world and yourself that you're kind of sure of maybe need to test. And you're kind of, kind of growing. It's the growth point. The base doesn't grow. So then the final bit is the net, which is your core people that keep you safe. So you don't bounce off into oblivion. (laughs) And they are like the seven, I think it's around seven people. I don't have any scientific behind that. I just kind of like I look at the average number of friends that people have. These are your ride or dies. These are your, the 2 a.m. phone call. They don't even bother answering the phone. They're already in the car. Like that's, that's what this is. They're the people that know who you are and know who you can be and love you in the midst of that process. And so that can, and this can change throughout your life. The net absolutely can change. The seven folks I have right now are my husband, my my best friend and business partner, um, my parents, my little brother, because he's also my co-owner of our company. So I have to, he keeps me really safe. And then a couple core friends. And they're the ones that you cannot hide from. And you don't, and you often want to, but you can't. Um, and they're going to tell you like, hey, you're bouncing way too hard with that. Um, maybe the bouncing is the improper work-life balance you have at the moment. Um, or maybe you're hanging out with a friend that they don't think is great. Um, or you've signed, or you've signed up for a retreat weekend that sounds sketchy to them and they're going to call you out or your, or something in your business doesn't sit right. And so those things, the, the, the friend that may not be right, or the, the bat, the work-life balance, those would be like the bouncy bits and the springs. Yeah. And these are the people that are like, Hey, I love you. Let me speak to that. Or you go to them and you say, okay, something, I'm not okay. And I don't know why. And I got to figure it out. So this is also like, those are the ways to know 
yourself. The trampoline is the steps to knowing yourself. And for me, the net is really important because you've heard me say this on Clubhouse before that I outsource my mental health. <laughs> um, but I think it's really important because there's we cannot know ourselves fully. There's way too many things about our brain that our brain protects us from that we have a completely different perception of how we move through the world than other people perceive us. Memory is also so elastic. We never actually remember the event. We remember the memory of the event. And so things just keep getting Xeroxed out and out and out and out. So you need other people to hold who you are and, and help you constantly be sewing that together. Um, yeah. So I think that's, that's it. You've got to know the biggest issue for people is always to figure out what's the difference between a spring and the base. And I cannot answer that for you. You'll know, you'll know when you know, when you know. Um, what's the difference between the spring and the base? My brain is just like turning and turning. I love this so much. I'm, I'm so glad we're having this conversation. Like I, I want to go down about 18 different rabbit holes right now. Um, so, and all of this connects back into leadership because if mm -hmm. we don't, if we don't know as much of ourselves as possible and have all those things, have the net for those pieces of ourselves that maybe we don't know, then how, how can we lead others? How can we be successful in that? Yeah. And I think all we do then is lead them into our own unexamined toxicity. You have great I, words. No wonder you're a TED speaker. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, it. It's all I'm good at. Um, this is, I've seen a lot of leaders. I've been studying leadership since I was nine. I should say my father, um, when I was nine decided that when I got grounded, which was frequently, um, that instead of like being put in timeout, that my grounding should be productive. And so he had me write book reports. And I wrote book reports on John Maxwell and um, To Kill a Mockingbird and, um, you know, all this stuff. I had to summarize books for him. And if I like at nine, I think nine is when I read Time to Kill for the first time, which is way too young to read Time to Kill. Um, but 11 is when I started reading Harlequins, also too young. So I've always been a little bit ahead of the curve. <laughs> um, but then he'd have me memorize long passages of scripture or Shakespeare soliloquies. And so I had to learn how to also think on my feet and present information. So he would ask me what this Bible passage has to say about leadership. What, what does this book have to say about leadership? Um, and when I was recovering from surgery, once he had me watch the entire, entire video series of developing the leader within you to the point where we still make jokes about John Maxwell sweaters, like still within <laughs> the family. So, I mean, for over, for almost 30 years, I've been thinking about leadership and looking at people who are good and poor leaders and thinking about like, oh, that person is so, so good and in the wrong position and they cannot do that job. Um, and I've been around the world and I've studied the history of the human race. And especially when I was in my seminary program, studying the history of Christian missions, which is a lot about failed leadership. Um, and studying now looking at i'm we do a series on our youtube channel called the colonizers world tour we go around the world and talk about the legacy of colonization and if you would like to talk about poor leadership let us talk about colonization and even decolonization like the all the portuguese colonies like portugal just woke up on a tuesday and went nah we're gone and like peaced out so like they left angola without a police force they're like okay we're all gone I'm like pals they still need their mail like what are you doing um and so I think about this stuff a lot on both large and small scales. I look at parents who I think are gorgeous leaders of their families. And I 100% know that if I took that parent and put them in another situation, it wouldn't work because they need the communal, the community part 
mm-hmm. to really enact their leadership. We've put, we've put, promoted far too many people to leadership who are actually just managers. Mm-hmm. And because we have deified leaders in a way, we don't allow for the, for the wide gifts of things that aren't leadership. Um, and that's leadership a good point. Being- well, and I, I think part of it too, part, I think part of the reason that we end up with managers in leadership positions is because we don't teach people how to be leaders. And I think that, I think that there's, I mean, you've been a student of leadership. It sounds like your whole life, like you can learn. I don't think that you ever master the art of leadership. I think no, you're, you have always, to keep leading humans, right? And humans are always changing and they're yeah. always different. Every time you come, you meet a new one. Um, but you can learn it and we don't, I mean, what's the average age that somebody starts getting any kind of leadership training, like thirties, late thirties, yeah, early forties I mean, college. I think for folks who go to college, it's happening younger and younger. Um, I know that's one of the things like when I was working more closely, well, even the university that I'm working with right now literally has a leadership Institute. Um, and there are lecture series and things on leadership. And Gen Z is very tuned in to that word leadership in a way that I think even as millennials, we weren't, but like I went, I had like leadership stuff in college. Um, and, um, and I was happy to avail myself of them. But like, when I think back, it was still the very rote definitions of leadership. Mm-hmm. It still wasn't this evolutionary, powerful thing we need to think of it as, which is, do you know yourself? Can you in, in, like intentionally influence others for good? And in what area can you do that? That's leadership. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, th- I'm, I think I am a very good leader. I think I am a good boss in some circumstances. Um, and I, I'm a charismatic leader. I can get up and like, you need somebody to get up in front of a room and calm the crowd and distract them from a <laughs> crisis. I'm your girl. Um, <laughs> Like, like I'm very good. Like people follow me because they trust me innately. Cause I seem to have this magic thing where people just trust me. Cool. I love it. I try very hard to use those powers for good and not evil. <laughs> um, and I have a friend that was like, please never join an MLM. Cause you will destroy the world. And I was like, yes, I got you. No problem. <laughs> um, so, but I can do that, but like, I'm not, I'm a terrible tactician. I'm terrible. I would have no idea how to help. Like I couldn't coach people on a field. I have no spatial awareness. I have no understanding of where anybody is, but I could do the really good locker room speech. Um, and so I think like the other thing too, is that we tend to believe that every leader has to be all of these things. Cause we've never really been trained. You're totally right. Mm-hmm. Um, I have hope for the future generations. Cause I know high schools that do leadership curriculum now, really? but I think those are really privileged spaces. Yeah, I um, definitely was yeah. not one of the things in the yeah. school that I went to. Um, yeah. Oh my gosh, I hate that our time is short and I feel like we definitely need a part two for this conversation. Yes, ma'am. Um, but before we close out, I do have one more question that I have to ask you. Okay. You've got 10 seconds, okay, to share a message with the world. Every single person in the world will not only hear you, but really truly internalize your message and do something with it. We have a magic translator that goes to every language. <laughs> Love it. Goes straight to the heart. And so, but it's only 10 seconds. What's your message? You are loved, worthy, and valuable, and everybody else is too. Oh my God, that's beautiful. I just got chills. I'm not even joking. Like I got chills. That was fantastic. 
Oh my God, Kristen, thank you so much for this conversation, for sitting with me. And we need to schedule another one super soon. Um, I'm going to put links to all of Kristen's things into the show notes and pretty much anywhere that I can post anything because she is amazing. Um, I cannot wait for your TED Talk. Uh, follow Kristen, follow me. I'll be posting all of her stuff everywhere as well. Um, I cannot wait. I'm super excited, not just for this TED Talk that's coming out, but for the next two and possibly the one after that, maybe. I'm shortlisted, so we'll see. <laughs> um, thank you again, Kristen. And any any final words before I close it up? I was going to say it's an honor to be here. Thank you so much. Um, I feel uh, an, I felt an immediate connection with you, and I love finding other uh, women in this work. So thanks, friends. And thank you. Check out all things Kristen in the show notes at curiousidealist.com and support the show at curiousidealist.com/slash/coffee. Be curious. Be kind. Be real. 